The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. The Bible is God's word to us. It is His word written. It's His revelation to us. In the Scripture, He reveals truth to us. He reveals truth about Himself, truth about us. He reveals truth about the world in which we live, the world which is to come. Very often, He reveals truth to us with simple, plain statements. For example, as in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, that says, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, with that statement, what God reveals is that he is immutable. He does not change. It's impossible for him to change. Or take, for example, Romans 3.10 that says, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Or Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that says, those two simple statements tell us, everybody in this room today is not righteous personally. You might Be offended by that. You might think, well, that's not quite right, is it? But I'm just telling you this is the way God reveals things to us. It's true of you. It's true of me that inherently in ourselves, we are not righteous. Inherently in ourselves, all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of what God requires of us in his glory. Or consider 2 Timothy 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is the only God there is, and we are men, we are people, the human race, and there's only one mediator between the God who is and the human race that he's created, and that one mediator is Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means if you're going to know God, if you're going to be reconciled to God, you need mediation And the only mediator that God has provided for sinful people is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior the world has. In order to live well well in this world, we need to understand these and other truths that God's revealed to us. And we need to not only just understand them, we've got to orient our lives accordingly to them. It's something like visiting a foreign country. If you go to a foreign country in order to have a good experience there, you need to know the laws of that land. You need to know the customs of that land if you want to make the most of your visit. Last year, Don and I had the privilege of going to Singapore to teach some conferences there for different churches. And before we went, I took time to read up on Singapore to learn about some of their laws and customs. And I'm glad I did because they have a lot. Uh, They have very strict laws against chewing gum in public, which I'm glad I knew before I went. They have very strict laws about not crossing the street apart from a place that says you may cross here. And by strict laws, I mean that they will fine you thousands of dollars uh, for these things if you're caught doing that. Well, I'm very glad I knew that before I got there. Knew the laws, so we didn't cross except one time. Uh, The street where there was a place saying you could cross here and... We had a wonderful time because we knew their laws, we knew their customs, and it was an enjoyable experience in that country. Well, in a similar but far more profound way, 
We need to learn how God governs his world. We need to know what God says about what's good and bad, right and wrong. Understand basic realities that he's given us in his word. Now, God states these things to us oftentimes in very simple, plain statements, like I just read in those few verses a moment ago. But very often, we might even argue more often because about half of the Bible is written this way, God reveals truth to us in stories. He illustrates and demonstrates realities that we need to know about himself and about his ways with his people specifically through stories. The Old Testament book of Judges, which we've just begun to study in the last couple of weeks, is a collection of such stories. It is a collection of historical records that come from a time in the history of Israel, God's old covenant people, that began with Joshua having led those people into the land of promise and then ended with the establishment of the monarchy in Israel with the rise of the first King Saul, who then was followed by David and David's lineage, and then the kingdom split apart with various kings in both north and south era, or south regions. But what we have in the book of Judges is a compilation of scenes, of, of experiences, of events that took place in that two to four hundred year period from Joshua to the establishment of Saul as the first king. There are 12 specific accounts given to us about different judges that God raised up during this two to four hundred year period. And if you count Deborah and Barak separately, they had one experience of a, a judgeship in Israel. There were 13 different judges during this time period. These stories about these judges are meant to teach us important lessons about the reality and the power of sin, about the spiritual impotence of people without God, and most importantly, about the faithfulness and love and mercy of God. Consequently, when we read Judges with understanding, we read it carefully, though we see the names of all these judges and all the different people that God used in leading nations against them, the main actor is always God. God is the one who is the primary worker, primary author, primary engager in the book of Judges. He's the one who's directing, ruling, overruling the events that unfold. And in this sense, Judges helps us to understand all of human history because it is a microcosm that reflects the way that God rules and overrules not just that period of history, but all of human history. What the Bible teaches from the beginning to the end is that, and what Judges illustrates graphically, is that God created the world by himself, for himself, in order to work out his own eternal purposes. What that means is that you and I, indeed everybody in the world, in some sense has been created to participate in perhaps to us inscrutable ways in what God is doing in the world. You are playing a role in what God is doing in this world. So what it means is that it may be your life, but it's God's story. He is the one ruling and overruling. 
Brothers and sisters, we who have come to know and trust Jesus Christ savingly and been reconciled to God through him, for us, there's one particular truth that God is intent to highlight in the way that he deals with his people that we see illustrated in the book of Judges that we're going to focus on this morning in the section from Judges that we will study. And that is that he deals with his people in faithfulness and in love. As the God who graciously has entered into a covenant with his people, he determines to love those people faithfully. He will not let his love fail. Now we see this in the first account of a judge being raised up to lead Israel through a time of crisis. That judge's name is Othniel, and the story that tells about his rule as a judge is found on page 202 in the Bibles that are in front of you in the chairs and the little pouches and the chairs in the back, or in Judges chapter 3 from verses 7 through 11. Judges 3, 7 through 11. These few verses this morning will comprise our study as we walk our way through the book of Judges. So hear the word of God as I read aloud Judges chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashereth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This rather sketchy account of Othniel's service as a judge in Israel serves as something like a paradigm for all of the other accounts of the judges that followed after him. It has all of the basic elements of this era of Israel's history, these elements that I touched on in the last study from this book. They go like this. There's a, there's a cyclical pattern to life in Israel during this part of their history. The people sin against God. They fall away from Him. They rebel against Him. God is angry about their sin. So enemies are raised up to oppress those people. The people ultimately cry out to God in their oppression. God raises up a judge to save them. That judge does indeed bring peace. Peace reigns until the judge dies, and then the cycle begins all over. Now we see that in this first account of what happened under the reign, the leadership of Othniel. But in and through all of the accounts, including this first one, there's one thing that remains constant, one thing that never wavers, and that is God's love for his people. What we learn today, what I want us to see as we study these few verses about Othniel, is that God loves His people faithfully. His love never fails. It never backtracks. It never recedes. In the verses that we've read for our text, we learn a lot about 
the way that our covenant God loves his covenant people. Israel, his chosen people, were the ones he delivered out of Egypt when they had spent hundreds of years enslaved to Pharaoh. They are the ones he constituted as a nation at Mount Sinai. They are the ones that he led and preserved and provided for for 40 years in the wilderness. They are the people that, according to the promise he'd given to their fathers, he led into the land of Canaan. He pledged themselves to be himself to be their God. He had promised even that they would be his people. He was going to make sure that everything necessary was done, that he would be the one that they would look to, the one that he, they would worship forever. So what does he do when his people, whom he's pledged himself to, whom he's called to be his people, what does he do when they turn away from him? Does he give up on them? Does he just wash his hands of them and say, I'm, I'm done with you? No. He continues to love them, and he loves them faithfully. Let's look at this passage of Scripture together to see how God loves his people. How does a covenant God love his covenant people? The first thing that we see is in verses 7 and 8. He loves them by sending them sorrows for their sin. He sends them sorrows for their sin. Verse 7, here's the typical pattern. We're going to see it time and time and time again as we work our way through this book. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil in the sight of the Lord. What, what does God count as evil? We've already seen this. But here it's reiterated again. There are two parts to their actions that God deems evil. Two parts to their evil. First is they forgot the Lord. Now, when the Scripture says they forgot the Lord, this is not some kind of passive amnesia. It's not like, oh, oh, yeah, of course, you know, just kind of forgot mindlessly. But rather, it is this intentional neglect of what God described to be and prescribed to be his ways. It's intentional disregard of God that results in no longer having a careful God consciousness in mind. This can happen not only by failing to fulfill the responsibilities that God sets before all of his children, but also by simply going through the motions when you engage in what God has prescribed for all of his children. You know anything about that? Have you ever found yourself there where you know what to do, you know what you ought to be thinking about, you know what to say, but your heart's just not in it. You're just going through the motions. Well, we see this happening in the history of Israel. And in fact, we see how far this type of attitude can take even the priests of God in the second chapter of 1 Samuel at the end of the era of Judges. There we have men by the name of Hophni and Phinehas, sons of Eli, who were priests. And when the people would bring their sacrifices to be offered up to the priests, Hophni and Phinehas would take those sacrifices and they'd carve out meat for themselves because they wanted the best meat for themselves. And the text says that they would commit sexual immorality with the women who came to offer up their sacrifices. Here are these priests in service to God at the altar Having just gone through the motions, they forgot the Lord. They forgot the God before whom they stood. Well, having forgotten the Lord, the text goes on to say the second part of the evil they committed in the sight of the Lord is they served the Baals and Asherah. These, as you might recall, were the fertility gods 
of the nations of Canaan that had been driven out, though not completely, from this land of promise. And what is being said to us here is that the Israelites acknowledged those gods. They went after these mini-gods in turning away from the true God, and they served them. They satisfied their lives in acknowledging them. They preferred the Canaanite gods and their ways of living to the true God and the ways that he prescribed for them. Brothers and sisters, isn't that exactly what we're tempted to do today? Don't we find all kinds of temptations coming to us, suggesting that if we would simply kind of temper down, tamper down our wholehearted devotion to the true and living God, that we could find meaning, purpose, life, we could find good things by chasing after many gods. If we will just kind of half-heartedly acknowledge God, then we'll be able to participate in the things that the gods of this world set before us and tantalize us with. That's what these Israelites did. And it caused them to begin living like people who didn't know God at all. So that there was really no discernible difference in their lives and in the lives of people who had wholeheartedly given themselves over to pagan gods. They forgot who he was. They forgot what he had done. And isn't that true of us? Whenever we begin to diminish the reality of God and our devotion to Him begins to wane, whenever we lose sight of His glory, His beauty, His goodness, His wisdom, isn't it because, isn't it tied into forgetting what He's done for us? This is exactly the indictment the Apostle Peter makes against us as Christians when we fail to be diligent in seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, listen to what he says to Christians. He says, brothers, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, be diligent in living this way. Be diligent in trying to grow in grace in the way that God has prescribed. But then he goes on and he says this, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. When Christians don't live like Christians, it's because they've neglected God. They've turned away from wholehearted devotion to God. It's because they've forgotten. The God who redeemed them has done so at such a great cost that Jesus shed his own blood to rescue us. That we've been bought, we've been purchased, not with silver and gold, not with money, not with stuff. We've been purchased by the very Son of God. And we forget. And in forgetting, we turn away from the paths that God has prescribed for us. What does God do? How does God respond to His people who forget Him when they offer up to Him only half-hearted devotion? Well, one thing the text indicates to us is He doesn't 
whitewash it. He regards it as evil. It's evil in his sight. And God, who loves his people, will not allow such evil to go unaddressed. So what does he do? Verse 8 tells us what he does. He causes his disobedient people to fall captive to enemy forces. Look at verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. He fulfilled the threats that he had made to them before leading them into the land of promise, where he promised good things for them, warned them not to forsake him, and said, if you do forsake me, then it will not go well with you. And here they forsake him, and it doesn't go well with them. He warned them not to serve foreign gods in the land of promise. But the king of Mesopotamia was an instrument of God. He raised up this king in order to overrun them and make them his, their subjects, his subjects for eight years. Think about this. They worship the gods of Kushan Rishathaim. And God then raises up this king to come and take them captive. That's always the way it is with idols. You start out serving them thinking that they're giving you what you need and you wind up being their servant, being enslaved by them. Our text gives us theological understanding of how God relates to history in verse 8. From a purely objective standpoint, if you'd been a historian or a reporter there looking at what was happening, it was obvious that the Israelites had been taken captive by the king of Mesopotamia. But there's much more going on than what meets the eye. Verse 8 indicates to us that God was behind these events. Do you see it? It wasn't just happenstance. God sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. And he did it because his anger was kindled against Israel. Now what's going on here? How are we to interpret this? What are we to make of this? Is God so upset with Israel that he's determined to get retribution for their sins? Is he going to make them pay for their sins? Is he going to now call them to give atonement for what they have done in violation of his will? No. He's not giving up on them. He's not throwing away their commitment and his commitments to them. Rather, what's going on is that God is acting in this way, raising up an oppressor because he loves them. This is an act of love. He loves them too much to let them get away with their sin. It's not hatred. It's not even unkindness that motivated him to deliver his people into the enemy's hands. It was love. He's not trying to destroy them. Rather, he's determined to keep them. He's determined to train them. Hebrews 12.6 explains how this works. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What we see going on in verse 8 is a covenant God loving his covenant-breaking people. This is the way God loves us. He loves us too much to let us go. 
Now, parents, fathers and mothers, there's a real lesson here for us in how we see the Lord dealing with his disobedient children, instructing us in how we should love our disobedient children. He loves his people too much to let them go on in their sin. That's why he sent them sorrows. It was kindness to send them sorrows. It was love in action. Be sure to love your children enough to correct them when they intentionally turn away from the good way you've instructed them in. And when you do correct them, be sure that they know the reason you're doing it is not because you're mad at them, not because you want to get even with them, not because they've made your life difficult. Make sure they know that you're doing this because you love them too much to let them get away with sin and disobedience. That's the way God loves his disobedient people. It's how he loves us. Isn't that comforting to know? It's not easy to experience. But it's comforting to know that God loves his people faithfully such that if we run astray, he will do everything necessary. He'll bring sorrow upon us if necessary in order to bring us back. He sends sorrow to his people to bring them to their senses. That's one way he loves. But a second way we see in our text that he loves his covenant people is by sending them a savior for their need. This is verse 9. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the king of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. His discipline of them had its intended effect. He wanted them to feel sorrowful. He wanted them to feel their brokenness. And he wanted them to cry out to him. And that's exactly what the text says. They cried out to the Lord. In their suffering and sorrow, they turned to the Lord. That's mercy. That's grace. That's God's love doing that. You know, sometimes as parents, we can make a mistake just at this point because we can't bear the thought of our children being sorrowful. Can't bear the thought of hearing a child cry or we think that if children are crying or sorrowful for any reason, then, then it's bad. It's bad. We try to alleviate that, try to do what we got to do to keep them from feeling sorrowful. Brothers and sisters, let me just go on record very clearly here with the Word of God saying that's wrong. The Bible actually commands us to weep and cry sometimes. There are good reasons to be sorrowful. James 4, verses 8 through 10, we read, Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What should sinful, double-minded people do? He says, be wretched. In other words, fill your sinfulness. Mourn, weep. Those are commands. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. There is a time to mourn and weep. There's a time to cry. There's a time to feel miserable. Those times come when we see that we have forgotten our God, turned away from the paths that He's prescribed for us. You know, it would be a very good thing if we were so sensitive to the Lord and His will, so filled with hatred for our own sin, that we would find ourselves regularly weeping over our sin. Because when we are deeply distressed over our sin, our difficult situation that comes as a result of sin, it's then 
that we become overwhelmed with the incredibly precious, gracious provision of what God has given to us in His grace. His grace is sweeter to the person who feels more bitterly the reality of sin. God would have us rightly prize His grace, His salvation, His Savior. So He allows discipline to have its intended effect by making us feel our desperate need. And then He meets that need by showing us the Savior. When we start living without conscious dependence upon the Savior, we start thinking we can make life work while forgetting God. God has His ways of bringing sorrows into our lives causing us to come to grips again in fresh ways with our brokenness, our sinfulness, even our rebellion, and showing us His grace in the mercies that are found in Jesus Christ who shed His blood for us so that our love for Him in response becomes deeper, more secure, more intense. This is what He did with the Israelites. Having brought them sorrow out of love, He raises up a deliverer to save them out of love. Othniel was the nephew of Caleb. We met him in the first chapter in verses 11 through 15 when he volunteered to go and take the city of Debir so that he could have a bride that was offered to him. He's a good man, evidently a valiant man. He became the instrument that God used to save Israel. We read the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people who saved them. Othniel becomes a prototype for all of the other judges who would follow. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that all the judges that we read about, or most of them we read about in the book of Judges, are flawed people. They're very flawed. Some of them are deeply flawed. But Othniel doesn't have anything bad written about him. He was a foreshadowing, not just of the judges who would follow him, but of Jesus Christ, who's the great and final judge who delivers his people, saving them from sin. Again, In these events, we're given a theological interpretations as they unfold. Othniel defeated the king of Mesopotamia, and thus he secured the freedom, the liberation of the Israelites. And in that simple phrase, who saved them, he raised up Othniel, who saved them. That simple phrase is packed with a mountain of grace. God saved his people not because they deserved it, Not because they returned to him. He saved his people because he loved them. Look at this. What did the Israelites contribute to this salvation? What does the text say they brought to the table? They cried out to the Lord. That's it. They didn't clean up their act. They didn't become better people. They didn't get their lives straightened out. They didn't pay a penalty. They cried. They wept. They recognized what they were, what they had become. They recognized who they were before the God of grace and mercy. And they cried out to him. And he saved them. He did it. I love a line from a song that we sing. We're going to sing it this morning. Again, before we leave. Called, Come Ye Sinners. There's a phrase in there, a line in there that goes like this. Let not conscience 
make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't, don't think, oh, tomorrow, when I get things straightened out, once I get over the hump, once I settle some things, then I'll come. All the fitness, the song goes on to say, he requireth is to feel your need of him. To feel your need of him. Do you feel your need of God, God of grace? Do you feel your need to be loved, to be shown mercy? Do you feel that? If you feel it, the song goes on to tell us why. This he gives you. This he gives you. It's the Spirit's glittering beam. You see, the fact that they cried out to God was brought about by God through his loving them and bringing sorrows upon them so that in their recognition of their need, they look to him and he sends a Savior to his weeping, self-consciously needy people. That's the way God loves us. He loves us. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to throw you off. He's not going to get disgusted with you. He'll do whatever he has to do to bring you back to the point of recognizing you need a Savior so that he can show you that Savior again and again and again. And you can return to the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood for your soul and find in him grace and mercy for right now. That's what's going on in our text. Have you ever felt your need for God? Friend, have you ever sensed the reality and ravages of sin? Maybe you don't call it that. Maybe that's not the language you use. But have you ever sensed that things are just not the way they're supposed to be in your life? Are you aware that there's more? Maybe you can't identify it, you can't articulate it, but you just have it, it maybe late at night when you're laying it, on your bed, your head's, head's hitting your pillow, you're thinking, there's got to be more. Things shouldn't be the way they are in me. I'm not right. That's God's kindness to you. That's God showing you some truth about yourself. Maybe it's the first dawning of the truth about yourself, but the Scripture goes on to bring it to full light that it's true. You're not the way you're supposed to be. None of us are because sin has ravaged us. And when you feel that, don't fight that, don't deaden that, don't anesthetize that, but rather acknowledge it and cry out to God. Because that's the way that covenant-keeping God loves. Showing you your need. And then meeting that need by sending the Savior. That's why Jesus Christ came. Because none of us is right. None of us is the way we're supposed to be. None of us can make ourselves right with God. We need a Savior. And in love, God sent His Son to save. You look to Him. You trust Him. You give yourself to Him. You'll find the salvation that can be found in nowhere else but Him. What do you do? When you sense your separation from God, what do you do when you finally come to those moments of clarity and honesty and say, yeah, I've blown it, I've sinned? One thing from our text, cry out to God. I don't know what to say. Your words aren't all that important. Cry out to God.
Acknowledge God. Acknowledge your brokenness. Acknowledge your need. The Lord will come to you by His grace. Heal and restore. It is right and good for us to recognize that in our relationship with God, all we have to bring to the table to enter into a right relationship to Him, to return to a right relationship with Him, all we have to offer is the acknowledgement of our sin and brokenness. Not resolutions, not bigger efforts, humble confession that results in crying out to God. Lord, I have blown it. Lord, I have not lived as you called me to live. Lord, sin is mixed in with my words, my thoughts, my deeds. Lord, I find myself here in my own brokenness by my own doings. I'm overwhelmed. That's what Israel did. That's all God wanted to see. That's why He brought the sorrows into His life, into their lives in the first place. And it is then, with those prepared hearts, feeling the weight of oppression upon them, that God raises up a deliverer to come and to rescue. But he doesn't simply send a good man to save them. Verse 10 goes on to say that he loves his people by sending them his spirit. Do you see that about about, uh, Othniel? The spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. And he went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. What is on display in Othniel's military exploits that's only summarily in the most uh, limited terms given to us, what is on display is not his military prowess. What is on display is the power of God who by his spirit came to Othniel and led him against that opposing king. When the king went out to fight Othniel, he wasn't fighting a mere man. He was fighting against God's man who had sent his spirit to anoint him. God's people were not left to the prowess of even a wonderful military leader. Rather, they're being cared for by God himself through the ministry of his spirit. In the Old Testament, the spirit of God was sent to God's people on special missions special occasions like this one to accomplish his purposes on earth. But in the New Testament era, after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit is sent into the world to carry out God's work on earth in fullness. In fullness. And you can see this in the book of Acts. You compare the book of Acts to the book of Judges, and you can see the difference between the ministry of the Spirit now versus the ministry of the Spirit then. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was given in power in fullness to demonstrate His coming into the world, not to be withdrawn again, not to be sent only on special missions, but to indwell His people, to fulfill the work of preaching and teaching the good news of Jesus Christ by living within the disciples of Christ. 
You see, God never leaves his hands, his, his work in the hands of mere mortals. Rather, he sends his spirit to empower mere mortals for everything that he calls us to do. Othniel was able to lead Israel because God's spirit was with him. He was able to defeat the king of Mesopotamia and drive him back because he fought not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord whose spirit he had. This is how God saves and loves his needy people. Today, living on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, we experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit more fully. God doesn't just send him on special missions to special people in these days. Rather, he sends his spirit to all of his children from the moment that we are born into his kingdom. Every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves of this time and again. If you are a Christian, you are a child of God, you have the Spirit of God living within you. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, 9 about this. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. To be a true Christian is to have God's Spirit dwelling within you. This is an important thought for us as Christians to remember that we have the living God within us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us as disciples of Jesus. The same Spirit that converted 3,000 people with one sermon on the day of Pentecost, that Spirit lives within God's people. God loves us too much to leave our welfare to mere human resources. He gives us His Spirit. And by the power of His Spirit, brothers and sisters, we are able to pursue and to fulfill the purposes that He has prescribed for us. When Othniel defeated Kushan Rishathaim, the Lord gave His people peace, rest, the text says, for 40 years. He saved them. And gave them peace. In doing so, what is on display is a foretaste, a foretaste of heaven, where there will be eternal shalom, eternal well-being, peace without end. This is the rest that God has promised to give to His people, not through the work of a human judge, but through the work of the greatest judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Othniel died, as the next verses explain that we did not read. The cycle begins all over. The rest and peace that was accomplished through his ministry came to an end. As I mentioned earlier when we started the study of this book, one of the purposes of Judges is to leave us wanting more. Leave us wanting more. In one sense, wouldn't it be great to have somebody like an Othniel to come and run for president, be elected president? Oh, man, wouldn't that be great? But you know what? Best president in the world could be elected. And we're going to be left wanting more, needing more. Because there's only one. There's only one deliverer who can save his people eternally. Rulers come and go. The judges came and went. They died. And when they died, the peace that they had secured died with them. What we need is a deliverer and a savior who will never die. And that's what we have in Jesus. Because he conquered death. 
He conquered death. So in Him, as we look to Him, as we trust Him, as we remember Him and live in the light of the truth that He's revealed to us in Him, we have peace here and peace forevermore. We know that the rest that we begin to experience here and now, we will never lose for eternity. In Jesus, we can come to know the height, and the breadth, the, the depth, and the, the width of God's great love for us. In this is love, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be a propitiation, that is an atoning sacrifice for our sin. How does a covenant God love His covenant people? He loves them by giving up His own Son for them. And with His Son, promising to do everything necessary to get us safely, to keep us safely from this world to the world to come. Brothers and sisters, God will move heaven and earth itself to keep you saved. He will not let you go. Your salvation is from grace to grace, first to last. And God will not let those who His Son bled for finally fall away. He will come to you and bring you sorrows, if necessary, to train you to be more dependent upon Him, to return to Him, so that you cry out to Him that He can shower grace and mercy upon you. But He does so not because He's put out with you. He does so because He loves you. And He's determined to save you. God who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, most certainly will with Him freely give us all things. Everything necessary. Everything to get us savingly home. If that's discipline, He'll give us discipline. If it's rescue, He'll give us rescue. If it's renewal, He will give us renewal. But He will not spare anything in order to complete the work that He has begun in us. That's our God. That's how our covenant God loves His covenant people. And I know some of you here this morning have never experienced that love. You might know about it. You might be able to answer questions about it. But you don't know what it means to be loved this way. My friend, God brought you here today. It's not an accident. He brought you here to hear this. Young people, children, God brought you here today to hear this. And what He wants you to hear is the truth that He is a God of overwhelming love. And what you need is to see how desperate you are. For such love. See your sin. Feel your brokenness. Acknowledge your separation from your Creator. Cry out to Him. Cry out to Him. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your amazing love. We thank You that You don't give up on us when we're tempted to give up on ourselves. We thank You that You love us enough. You love us so much that You will not let us go on in our sin and our backwardness. 
but you'll pursue us. You'll bring sorrows to us in order to restore us. We praise you for such faithful love. I pray that today you would strengthen your people who are feeling the press and the weight of difficulties in life. I ask that you would come to them with comfort and reassurances that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray for those who have never experienced your love that today, today, they would hear your voice and not try to clean up their lives, but cry out to you. And that with the cry of their heart, they would hear you coming to them with your saving grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Oh God, today, speak with a voice that raises the spiritually dead, revealing Jesus and those who entered the room today, strangers to you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.